as you turn in your Bibles, as the children are exiting out to Children's Church, to uh, the book of James, as we are continuing our study, we're going to be in chapter 5 uh, this morning. This will not be a text you ever hear at any graduation uh, service. In fact, you just rarely ever heard this read out loud. James 5, verse 1 through 6. Are you familiar with the monkey trap? It's the, uh, the trap where it's a cage with a hole that is just big enough for the size of the monkey's hand and which will be a banana or some favorable treat that the monkey would like. But as the monkey grabs that treat, the hole is not big enough for a fist to come out. And so you have that monkey that will be stuck to the cage because it cannot bear to let go of the banana. And instead of letting go of the banana, it will be ensnared and killed by whoever or uh, whatever purpose the trapper has in mind. Um, it is a beautiful, somewhat <laughs> sordid picture of what it is to have a double mind, a double heart. It is the issue that James has been addressing as we look in and read this. He is all the while talking about having a whole heart. To, the word is perfect or complete. To be wholehearted, not double-minded, not conflicted with the desire for Christ and the desire for ourself at the same time. Something has to give. And so he addresses various subjects uh, that reveal our double heart, double mind, and shows us what it looks like to be wholehearted in our worship of Jesus Christ. James chapter 4 has been pivotal for the book. Uh, in fact, I believe in James 4, he addresses the linchpin of how we turn from our double-hearted, double mind to be wholehearted by the grace of God. Uh, and so, uh, as we looked last week, uh, at the words that we use and how, and James 3 talks about the words that we use reveal our heart. James 3 talks about what it looks like, or James 4, what it looks like when our whole heart starts speaking into our tongue. And so a, a double-mindedness is, is to be healed by God's grace. And, and so we, we learned and as we look at James 4 that the uh, self, uh, well, the person that is self-filled with self is miserable in their life. And their relationships will be miserable with being self-filled. And so that the, the solution uh, for being full of self and, and the misery that's in there is to learn how to humble ourselves, learn how to rest under God's authority. And as we read in James chapter 4, uh, verse 8, 9, 10, we see here that there is a... Uh, a purifying of our heart, a cleansing of our heart that comes with our confession, with our humbling ourselves, and that God will give grace, healing to those who are humble. But if we remain full of ourself, well, God's resistance is going to continue. And we see that we are full of ourselves when we deny the sin, when we excuse the sin, when we defend our sin and have defiant tone uh, and give all kinds of disclaimers why we're such sinners. Uh, it is not 
the picture of humility, but it is the picture of still being filled with yourself. And so God is continuing to resist us and will so until we come to the point where we will humble ourselves and rest under God's authority. And we saw what it looked like uh, to pursue resting in God's authority and the issue of our speech uh, at the end of James chapter 4 how we look at God's authority and how we speak and not belittling one another and belittling one another is putting ourselves in the place of God uh, and judging the law itself. Uh, Then talking about our plans, resting in God's authority with our plans to know that God has say in what we plan to do. And we see that in verse 13 all the way through verse 17. And now in chapter 5, he's going to deal with materialism, our rich um, what do we do with our riches, and how does God speak into this? So I'm going to ask that we stand as we read James chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eating. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart, your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You may be seated. This is quite a striking passage. I told you you would not hear this on a graduate type Sunday. Um, And in fact, many people read this and and see such strong language from James. Uh, Come, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, This is not the passage you read to find that special uh, feel-good moment, right? Uh, but instead is imploring a a very different emotional reaction. Uh, And so some have wondered, is this even talking to believers? I mean, it's such strong language, talking to believers. Surely he must be talking uh, to the uh, unbelieving rich. Uh, But yet, in the book of James, you read from the very beginning that this is addressed to the saints. Um, James chapter 1 this is to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, the believings, uh, using the Jewish tribe reference allusion, but saying you are believers and you're scattered all over the world. I'm, I'm talking to you. And in James chapter 4, you see him talking to people that are of the church and says, look, there's quarrels and there's fights among you. Uh, that's because you have passions at war within you. You have conflicted hearts. You have double-minded. And his admonition to them, his instruction to them uh, is that in verse 9, be wretched, mourn, and weep. When you are a believer but you have a double mind, then the solution is cry out for repentance. And I think that in our, in our scene of our church where we, uh, in the New Testament, we know there's grace and we know there's forgiveness. A lot of times we don't make a lot of room for flat out mourning of sin. Because after all, we think, well, God's going to forgive it, Right? Well, there is assurance from the Word of God 
that there is grace and there's forgiveness. But at the same time, you see in the New Testament that there is to be a longing of love for Jesus Christ that will produce within it a strong reaction to our sin. That there is not to be a callous spirit about sin in our life just because God gives us grace. In fact, all the more, God's grace, His love for us, what He's done for us, the beauty of who He is and how He's brought us into the sweet fellowship should instead produce a violent reaction to our own sin. And so we read James 5 and we think, well, that's just strong. I think it's strong because we have felt so weak about our own sin. We've just said, well, it's no big deal. Everyone sins, right? Yes. But God is rescuing us from that habit, that way of thinking that can rot out our soul. And we forget about the consequences of what it does to us. So, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, I need to understand and, and explain that he's not bemoaning the fact that you have money, that we have wealth. And the fact of the matter is that I'm sitting in this room that in the world standard, we all fit into a wealth standard and a worldwide perspective, which is the way that God looks at it. I, you know, we all judge by a, a relative curve, right? Who's wealthy and who's not. Uh, we can find some neighborhood that's wealthier, more wealthier than ours and some less. And we can always find that. But listen, God isn't judging on some curve relative to North Raleigh or Cary or downtown. He just sees us in, uh, from how we have resources compared to the rest of the world. And so just understand that we fit into that bill of those who have riches. And so the problem isn't the riches, but the attitude that can come with it that he's addressing. Because what he's addressing is double-mindedness, double heart, and that the wealth can produce a conflict of heart and soul that he wants to be addressed. And so as we read this, um, he's, he's continuing to think about that our quality of life isn't measured in terms of possessions. Get that? Our quality of life isn't measured by the term of possessions that we have. That a, a person, uh, we have this myth that is an owner of all that they possess, they possess and can do what they Please, we have this myth that we are the owner of everything that comes under our control and we can do with it as we please. Did you know that is a myth? That is not true. And then we have another myth that a person can adequately protect your wealth if you just handle it correctly and carefully. You can protect your wealth, you can protect your assets if you just handle it carefully and wisely. James is about to <laughs> strip all those myths away in one poignant section from verses 1 through 6. So let's look at this, verse 1 through 3. We're going to find that we can rest in God's authority. Let God's authority govern our desire, govern our desire uh, for accumulation. So verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Now when he talks about this, your riches, your garments, your gold and silver. When he lists these, these four areas, 
Riches could refer to grain, that's possible. And if so, grain, gold, silver, garments were the primary methods of accumulating uh, riches in that day and time. We have stocks and bonds, uh, various things like that, land and, and other ways of accumulating the wealth today. Well, he takes the four most common ways of accumulating them and shows how they quickly can go away. That He says, well, um, your riches can rot, your grain can rot, your gar- garments. Have you ever had that happen? You go into your closet and how did this hole get here? Mike, this is, you know, this is a two, three hundred more dollar suit and now there's a hole in it. You know? And so he says, moth-eaten can come and ruin your, your garments. He says, you keep on reading, your gold and silver, that there can be a corrosion, there can be a rust that can take place. And it's a metaphorical image to the day of judgment that it says will happen. In fact, you said you've laid up treasures in the last days. And so this accumulating of riches is in the face of the Lord's respected return. And that's what makes it all the more worse, is that we're, we're, we're accumulating this money, and it seems like we're forgetting that even the Lord is going to promise to return. It's fascinating when you look at the history of the book of James. Uh, this was written in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, uh, written before Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, according to just what some Bible scholars believe of when this was written, it was just a short 10 years when this was written before Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed by Rome. I remember when I was visiting in Jerusalem, we, there was a, a part where we could go into an ancient Jewish quarter and we could see various homes of this time period of the wealth of some of what was wealthy homes. And, and you had certain patterns on the wall that de- demonstrated that this was a wealthy home or you had a certain type of flooring that could take uh, be there. If there was a, a heating mechanism of, of hot water going through the water, then you, uh, through the floor, then you knew that this was a well-to-do home. It had the amenities of that time. <clears throat> and I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm sure that was great for them, but I'm sitting here in ruins. All these things that made status symbols uh, now are just one of many a uh, part of the ruins that is there. And so he, he understands that there is going to be a judgment time. And so uh, when we look at these accumulation of riches, accumulating of money to do so for some, some purpose outside of God's authority is just laying up judgment that's going to happen uh, in our life. I remember uh, when I was young, uh, let me ask you this question. How many of you still have your Easter candy? There's a few of you that have their Easter candy. I used to be, and I think, I think we still have a chocolate rabbit in uh, a pantry, uh, uh, somewhere in our pantry. And I remember when I was little, I'd get the chocolate rabbit. And I never wanted to eat the rabbit. Because I thought it would hurt the rabbit. And I was just so sad when I saw that my mom came in and consumed the ears. And there's a little bit of emotion. I was way too sentimental uh, when I was young. I was like, oh no, the rabbit. And, and so in my desire to preserve the chocolate rabbit, the whole chocolate would just go to waste. And no one could eat it. And it would just ultimately get thrown away. Because I had just this sentimentality of just wanting to have a chocolate rabbit in myself. That ultimately became good for nothing but to be thrown away. 
I think there are some times that we accumulate wealth because it, it's like, it just tells us that something special about us if we have this, but no one can use it, and no one else can use it, and instead, what it will be used for as, as I read this, in James chapter 5, verse 3, that those things are going to be laid up in treasure in the last days, and they can be actually used against me if I'm accumulating these riches for something outside of God's authority. Let God's authority govern our desire to accumulate. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I've shared with you how James is focused so much on the Sermon on the Mount that shapes so much of what he's saying. And you see this there. Imagine a, a Christian child and a rich tycoon. They both die. And they're in a deadly accident together. And they both get stripped of credit cards, title deeds, stock options, bank options, cars, lands, clothing, and jewelry as we all will ultimately strip be of before God. Who will be better prepared for the final accounting? And what will help him through the judgment? When it's said and done, it's what we do with those treasures. Are we letting God's authority speak into that? Or is our heart holding on to those things? Saving is good. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 14, the Bible says, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. So there is a role of saving and passing on but not for the desire of hoarding. We're going to learn how to give to God and not to keep. Proverbs 19, 17, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he's given. Even if money could satisfy, which it doesn't, it will still leave us unprepared before God, even if it could satisfy. We'll keep on reading verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is where we're going to let God's authority not only govern our desire to accumulate money, but let God's authority also govern and speak to how we care for our helpers. How we care for our helpers. This is where those who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have a heart sold out for Jesus Christ, they can display the difference in their work by how they care for their co-workers and their employees. And notice he's saying uh, in this day and time that what was probably the case culturally is that uh, they would have uh, day laborers coming in. So the, the four, the foreign, the poor, the transit workers would, would be these day workers who would be paid at the end of the day of work. And these employers would not pay them at the end and they would say, they would, why don't you wait till the harvest and defer their payment on the, on the money. To withhold or defraud is to still keep back what belongs to the others around them. And the payment soon was screaming against the employer and God was listening. God is listening. Let me ask the question, how 
noisy will it be as we stand before God's judgment? What will the ears of God hear and how we've treated those who are working with us? It is to say that God is the one carrying us in our life. And he's asking us simply as you, as you are carried by the Lord to demonstrate the love and the grace of God that's upholding you by giving grace to those who are working with you. How crazy would it be if I had my dad carry me uh, on his shoulders and then I proceed to take my feet and kick him uh, as he's carrying me? That's a simple conclusion where I just get dropped, right? To say there is a love and respect that we show to the one who's carrying us and we show it by those who are working with us. And so how we care for the others around us also can reveal our heart. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. Leviticus 19 verse 13 says, You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, they work for it, you pay them. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. So what does it have to do with us? If we're an employee-employer situation, and it's, it's obvious, the implications here, that, that we are to be the ones who, are, who show our heart for God, and that God owns our heart by how we care for others. But also, consider our own debts. As Christians, do we have a bad name by owing money and not repaying? Our employees should, our employees should not be able to find fault with us, or those who work underneath us should not be able to find fault with us because we're not taking care of them. There is to be a fairness and a generosity that represents God's care of us that we're to pass on to others. We keep on reading verse 5 and 6. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is where we're going to let God's authority govern our goals with our money. Does His authority govern our goals, what we have with our money. Do we pray about, God, you've blessed us with this amount of money. What would you want us to do? What would be most pleasing to you? <laughs> so as I say that, I know there's a part of us that may be saying, well, you know, I'm afraid to ask that of God. Because if God, if I say that to God, then there's this, this money. I know I've, I've kind of got locked away. I've, got, I've squirreled away for this purpose. And if I give that to God, he's probably going to say no, and he's going to make me do something else. I know how that works. I'm just not, no, I'm not going to do that. Listen, we need to understand that when we disobey God and his authority, we are saying that we do not believe God and that God's purposes cannot bring joy in our life. Are we prepared to say that? Can you believe that if, if you allow God 
to speak into your money, will you be able to believe that there will be a joy that can be found there? that is uniquely found in obedience to God, that cannot be duplicated because you're squirreling away to purchase something else that is outside of God's direction for you. When it comes down to it, do you believe God? And I would say that there is a joy that can only be found when you're under God's authority. And do you want to be in the place where you are filled with yourself, therefore, enduring God's resistance to you? It's funny how I will say, you know, you, you really want God's resistance to you, and then when I bring out the money life, money part of it, we are quick to say, no, I don't want God to resist me in my financial affairs. There is grace that comes with those who are submissive to God's authority. So let's have the right goals for our money. You notice what we have in verse 5 and 6. He shows this is what it looks like when we are filled with ourselves. You lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Your, your heart is, is, is not with God in this. It is for yourself. And so you fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So I guess the question that comes with this is that whenever there is an increase that comes to us financially... I find that my first go-to often tends to be, how can my life become more comfortable because of this? As I go down that track and every time money comes my way or blessings come my way or savings come my way and I ask myself, how can I make my life more comfortable because of this? I am falling down a self-indulgent path because the end of the money isn't just to make my life more comfortable. But while we be willing to say, God, I want to be most pleasing, what is most glorifying to you with this increase that has come my way? And if we are quick to reject that, it's like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to pray about that. And I, I, I hate the fact that I'm here and I'm even hearing this. If that is our mentality, we will go from greater, more comfortable lifestyle to more comfortable lifestyle. But ever you thought about why? What would be the end goal of this? I had grandparents that had pigs. And if you ever go through a hog killing, you never forget what that's like. But all along the way, I remember going out with granddad and feeding the pigs. And, uh, you know, some would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a good thing that the pigs don't think too much about it. Because if they thought too much about it, they would observe the one that got the most food, that got to be the biggest, that after a while would not be there anymore. Because it was the big pig that was slaughtered to provide the most meat. What he's saying here, did you get what's said here? Verse 5, you lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In your, our double-minded way, our dull, conflicted hearts, we've sat upon and we've put our heart upon things that fatten us. More comfortable, self-indulgent, better lifestyle. And we keep going and we keep going and keep going. And from God's perspective, it's saying, it's just going to be used against us in the day of judgment. 
What is our goal with our money? The purpose of money is the same purpose of everything that has been created by God. Everything that exists, exists because God has established it. So money is not bad. It's not evil. God created it. He has a purpose for it. And the purpose of it, like everything else, is to glorify God. The purpose of all the money that comes through your hands, ultimately, will be judged by the standard of, did this glorify God? And it's okay to take care of ourselves, because that also is a part of our responsibilities that is God-given in caring for one another. But there is an end goal, and that is to glorify God with it. And so when the needs are met, when the requests are done for our family, it is right for us to say, God, how would you want this money to be glorifying to you? And I don't necessarily have to assume that it's going to be within my realm of riches that that's going to remain, that it can be given out because my goal ultimately is to glorify God. It's good to have things that money can buy while you have what money can't buy. For example, it's good to have a nice home. But what's the point of having a nice house if you have no home for them to be in? It's nice to have an expensive ring, but what's the point of the expensive ring if you have no love to go with that ring? There are some things that money can buy, and there's many things that money can't buy. It's great to have both, isn't it? But if we're not careful, we get an either or. The character plus wealth equals much good, but self-indulgence plus wealth equals sin. So the problem is not having a six-figure income. The problem may be having a six-figure lifestyle. That's where we have to think about this, where our hearts are. How many of you would give up children for money? Seems kind of absurd, doesn't it? But yet, we could have people working multiple jobs so that we can maintain a comfortable lifestyle, but have you thought about what you're trading? To get the comfortable lifestyle, you've missed out on the time with the kids. People are above things. Learn to be satisfied by living in simplicity. Little saying, if your outflow exceeds your inflow, your upkeep will be your downfall. All right, very simple. If your outflow exceeds your inflow, your upkeep will be your downfall. So we read this last verse, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. It's interesting what's being said there, the righteous person, how you translate that, how you interpret that. Some says righteous man, but it's a singular word, noun. Literally, the righteous one. He does not resist you. It's not he cannot resist you. If it was just poor people, they can't resist you. But there seems to be a choice. This righteous person does not resist you. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one or the righteous person. He does not resist you. I believe it's speaking about Jesus Christ. 
You see some interesting passages in Mark 14, later in, in Matthew as well. Remember the story where Jesus is anointed in Bethany? It's, it's probably uh, uh, Mary Magdalene. The story goes that it's in the house of Simon the leper. As he's reclining, this, this woman comes with an, an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, extreme worth. This is kind of like a, one of your lifetime savings type of, of items. And the, the thing about this alabaster flask is you can't just screw off the top and screw it back on. I'm thankful when that was invented. But what they had to do was just break the flask. It's kind of like these one-time use stills. Better be good. Lifetime savings for something like this. She comes in very costly, broke the flask, poured it over the head of Jesus. And there were some that were standing by that was very indignant, angry about this. And why was this ointment wasted like this? It could have been sold for more than 300 uh, denier, given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. You, you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she's could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you that wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And in Mark and in Matthew, right after this account, it talks about Judas. Both of them say, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Lifetime supply given an adornment of Jesus Christ for just maybe one month's salary to betray him. Jesus knew what was in the heart of Judas. And it was, among all the other desires that seems to be complicating Judas's mind, one of them was a desire for riches. 30 pieces of silver? Okay, I'll do it. This love for riches condemned and murdered the righteous person, but he does not resist you. And so as we read about this, I want to just remember our Lord's relationship with money as we look into our own wealth and the money that comes our way. How does the Lord relate with these things? And two things that I would just think James brings to your mind. First of all, remember verse 3, you have laid up treasure in the last days. In Jane's perspective, as he talked and wrote this letter, these were the last days. And if those were the last days, then these certainly are the last days. As we think 2,000 years later, we are in the last event before the Lord's return. He says, in this season, yes, you're going to plan, but you're not going to hoard up. I mean, if you're, if you're an 80-year-old individual... You're going to have a will, right? It'd be criminal not to have a will. You're going to plan for death, but you may not be taking some 10-year projects. Because in the back of your mind, you know, I may not have long. I may not have long. But with what I have, I will plan with it. And I will do with it. Listen, when we have riches, 
and wealth and things that come our way as every one of us have these things come to us. Understand that there is a return of the Lord and he is coming back. And so when it's said and done, it's not the standard of what our house may look like or what our clothing attire, and certainly not what the mall teaches or what Amazon teaches or anything else teaches us to say this is what the good lifestyle is. It is to look beyond by faith and knowing that we will be judged by a different standard according to what pleases God. But know that when God walked this earth, he did not bow down his heart to wealth. And when he saw that wealth was used to glorify his name, he loved it. He made much of it. And he also saw that wealth could be used to crucify him. But amazingly, he did not resist. He allowed it to happen because he knew that in the accomplishment of it, there could be grace and riches coming our way when we humble ourselves. All this to say, there are many ways our hearts, double-minded, can be fleshed out. Money's one of them. But the good news is that God dresses this so that if you realize that money is a problem of which your heart latches upon and does not submit it to God, then the solution is what James says from the beginning, weep and howl, knowing that there is a judgment that's coming, but go back to James chapter 4 and Realize that you can submit yourselves to God, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. It is to simply say to God, God, my heart has gone down wrong paths and is leading to the destruction of my heart and soul. God, will you forgive me of these sins? Lord, I want to change. Would you cleanse my heart, purify my heart so that you would be number one in my life. May I know the joy of you being God over my possessions, over my money. And God, give me grace as I humble myself before you. And that is the solution that is for every single human here. It may be your issue is riches. It could be that your issue is your tongue. It could be how you treat others. But the solution is the same, that we all come together in James chapter 4, verse 6 through 10, and say, this is our heart. Would you pray with me? Let's make that our heart together.